Just a word of thanks to the choir here and also to the special number this morning by our ladies. That was just so beautiful. Um, I said to my wife I, uh, many times, I said, you know, we need a choir at our chapel. She said, move to California. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, let's just be clear, uh, I did not ask Nick to change his last name. Okay, That's just, I just want to get that out there right now, Nick. Okay. Um, the, um, the Yosemite Conference, I'm an alumni. Lord willing, Lord willing, we'll go back this year. So I'd love to see you all there. Not that I'm even from California, but if I'm going to be there and you live here, do the math. <laughs> Number two, the Believer's Bible Conference. Now, um, I'm actually praying we'd have 1,000 people. Now, I'm pretty sure that if I could get 500 from the West Coast, we'd have 1,000 people. But I, I um, really encourage you to go. Some of the some of the outstanding things is that in the evenings we have uh, sessions for our young people with Nate Bramson and Brady Collier and Scott DeGroff. And we'll have uh, some, we swelled up to 250 to 300 last time. That's, that's almost half the conference. Um, we have uh, spent a lot of time putting together the seminars. Some of those seminars are, are designed to be specifically targeting issues that we face. For example, mental health and the mind of Christ. That's a big thing for those who do shepherding work. We'll have a, a, a panel, a two panels actually this year. One on, and on uh, shepherding care. The other on, um, on working with those who are broken. We've asked uh, Sue Stratman to do a ladies' session on when the bottom falls out of your life. I think she's qualified, don't you think? Yeah. So uh, we encourage you to come. Uh, if, if, if all you can do is fly to Kansas City, then take our bus, and we'll get you there. All right? But I uh, would encourage you to be there. Let's pray again. Father, we ask your blessing on the word of God this hour. We do thank you for the privilege it is to handle such precious treasures of heaven. We ask that you would give us grace so that we might not handle them frivolously or foolishly, but that the word of God would be given its proper esteem and our obedience in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I will read as my practice is this particular portion of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'm going to begin in that verse of exhortation, that paragraph of exhortation, beginning in verse 12. And we urge, you there, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor over you, who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Almost as if he's saying, I want you to do something. It is not a natural thing for you to get along with those in authority, speaking of the old nature, but yet I have established that as the norm, and, and I need you to work at it. I need you to work at it because you really do love them. So be at peace with yourselves. Now we exhort you, therefore, or we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, 
Uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. I just have a small comment about that. You know, Chris was talking this morning, brother, about those who have doctrinal error, right? That was the main theme of Chris's message. Now, I want you to know that there are those who, who are in the assembly, who are in our, in our circles, who do not have doctrinal error, but they have error in character. And what do I mean by that? Well, I don't mean that every, every little jot or tittle is not being obeyed, but what I mean is that there is a, a sense of an agenda. There is an, a sense of, uh, I'm the only one qualified to be a shepherd in this meeting. Uh, there's a sense of, uh, if you don't do it my way, then you do it no way. And all those attitudes are actually contrary to sound doctrine. It even says that in the book of Titus. You have behavior, you have attitudes which breed sound doctrine, which adorn, make beautiful the word of God. And it has so much to do with our disposition. That's an unruly situation when there is a breach of such a protocol. All right, and then we move on to verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. I emphasized that that last night. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit of God. And we spent some time developing this idea. What does it mean to suffocate the breath of life, right? That that seems uh, so uh, uh, um, ironic to be able to put those concepts in the same sentence. What does it mean to suffocate God? Is that even possible? And the answer is it's not only possible, it's done on a regular basis. And we looked at those in the Old Testament who proved such, uh, who provided us with such evidence. And then we looked at this phrase, which is a way that we can quench the Spirit of God, and that's those, it says, do not despise prophecies. Don't treat the revelation of God's Word with a sense of haphazardness, a sense of disdain or contempt or, or a, a, a lack of its due respect. And when I say that, that's not only in verbal expression of the priority of God's Word, but it's also in a dedicated life to do no matter what it says all the time, every time. That's how you really show that you don't despise prophecies. That's how you really show you esteem God's word. Everywhere in the scriptures, it comes down to one thing, obedience to his word because we love him, not because we have to. If you love me, you'll keep what? My commandments. That's God's word out of a heart of love. When God says to you, he says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, but on this person I will look, on him who has a broken and contrite heart, and he who trembles at my word, Isaiah 66. There's this concept in which I I know it, I believe it, I yield to it. I submit to the word of God. In essence, submitting to the authority of God. So when it says do not despise prophecies, he's also implying very, very strongly that there is a, a particular element of your loyalty to God which must be expressed to the word of God and therefore to God himself. And saints, we really fool ourselves. We deceive ourselves if we think just knowing where it is in chapter and verse, just being able to quote it in full or in part is equivalent to being an obedient servant. 
Saul knew what Samuel said, and he was far from obedient. Now we reach this passage today, or this verse today, this afternoon. Test all things. We're going to spend some time there today. What does it mean, test all things? We covered this this morning, and it says, and it means particular, particularly a close examination, not just a casual glance, not just a, 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 a sort of a, a diagnosis from across the room. One of the first things that happens in medical legal litigation is that the attorneys will always ask, did you examine the patient? And that means more than just slap the stethoscope on their brow. It means that you looked closely. And this is what he's saying. You look closely. And I would suggest to you that it happens not only in looking at the totality, the overall configuration, the pattern, the, the shape, but also looking at every individual part. And so when Chris was talking about examination of doctrine, we look not only at the large uh, uh, conclusions of a doctrine and its ramifications, but we also look at the individual parts of how you came to those conclusions and what are the extension of such conclusions. That's all part of this idea of testing all things. And I think that's a necessary element that allows unity in the body of Christ. What you're looking for is... The genuine quality of it all. That's what the word test means in the original language. You're testing not just to see if it passes a list of criteria, but you are looking for its depth, length, breadth, and width, uh, length and breadth and width and height of its quality, of its authenticness, that it has a sense of being uh, true to its, its owner, that it's not fake. And when Chris referenced the church at Ephesus, you know, they were known for their ability to discern error. It's, uh, it's written in some, um, uh, some sources that they were sort of on the crossroads of, uh, of the major Roman highways. They were a seaport. They had a, 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 a highway that ran north-south on the coast of Asia Minor, and they had a highway that ran from the from the west, or excuse me, from the east to that seaport, then you would grab a boat and head over to Rome. So they were on a, a major cosmopolitan intersection, which means this, that you had a lot of foot traffic of those who were propagating the wrong kind of doctrine. If there's any place that needed to know doctrine backwards and forth, it was Ephesus. And they were known for being able to hear and discern what appears to be immediately those who claimed to be apostles and were not. That is a great compliment, and they were therefore testing all things. Now, what does this idea of it mean to test all things? What, is, what constitutes all things? And I think what helps us here is a couple of things in the Word of God. And I'm going to talk about three. I'm going to talk about the first one is the will of God. We're going to Test the will of God. How do we do that? And this is a major discussion point, and I'd like you to, to bear with me on it. I know that, that that chicken and that beef and those ribs are just about now taking and saturating every portion of your digestive tract. And as you, as you look at me, your eyelids are starting to droop. Your, your drool is starting to flow. And your head is starting to bob. Chris, I'm talking about you. We, we had that worked out. No, no. <laughs> but I want you to, to, to bear with me because this is actually something that a lot of us struggle with. 
including myself. What does it mean uh, to test all things? Well, the Scripture comes to us in Romans chapter 12. Now, I'll turn there, but you could probably quote it. And it says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present. Notice there is a, a begging of Paul to do something in response to the doctrine of chapters 1 through 11. And the natural, normal response is to surrender to God. And in particular, you surrender your bodies. Now, why your bodies? Does God need your body? Well, the point is, is that the Spirit of God looks to dwell within you, and that comes out in Corinthians, where both as a corporate body and as an individual personal body, the Spirit of God makes you His residence, where He can live the life of God, the personality of God through you. So therefore, your bodies are important. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, separated, acceptable, that is, received by God, and a sacrifice that God would not reject, as was the case in, in the days of, of Cain, which is your reasonable, this is your logical thing you should do, based on all the doctrine that's come before us in chapters 1 through 11. Uh, and do not be conformed. There's a negative. There is a molding that the world does to you. It shapes your mind. It shapes your heart. It shapes your emotions. It, 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 the, the world has a way of letting you and I get off the hook with outrages of anger saying, well, he was just or she was just in the moment of, of emotion. Well, that's not acceptable either. We can't let that mold us and dictate our Christianity. But we should be metamorphosized, changed in form is the idea. How? By taking the organ of your soul, that is your thinking faculties, your rationalistic faculties, and let the Word of God so permeate every crack and crevice of the logical thinking of your mind so that the only thing you can find in your mind is the Word of God. You are like a sponge, every pore saturating every, every curve and, and curvature of those pores of that sponge so that when we wring you out, you wring out, you drip out the Word of God. There's nothing else to be found. That's what he says for the next statement. It's this. That you may prove, this is the same word, test all things, that you may prove what is good, what is benevolent, what is wholesome, what is acceptable to be received, able to be taken in without hesitation, and that perfect or mature, fully uh, uh, um, uh, risen to its full level of maturity, the will of God. Now, the will of God is, is a difficult thing, isn't it? It's, it's, there's, there's several concepts to that, including God's express will or God's permissive will. You can find both of those in the, in the scriptures. God intends that you be thankful, as we read, his expressed will. And yet we find that there are times in which God permitted things within his will. He permitted the children of Israel to have a king. It was not his express will, but it was tolerated by God. And yet he would work through that permissive will of God to, to continue to establish his principles and precepts and priorities, eventually using such decision-making to bring the Messiah through a royal line that was established uh, in Israel. So you can see God's expressed will, his permissive will. But interestingly enough, we are charged by the saturation of God's word in our souls to authenticate the will of God. I would never do that. I would never ask the most inexperienced and the least likely to succeed 
to evaluate and authenticate something so important. Would you do that? <laughs> when we were young, we were going to uh, buy some, a diamond. I was going to buy a diamond for my wife. I, re I really had no clue the value of those rocks. My cousin was going to sell it to me, and, and, uh, and I just stuck them in my pocket, and I went downtown in St. Louis to, to see a jeweler. I was, uh, how old was I? 20. Yeah, I, had no, I was dumber than dumb. I go into this uh, uh, skyscraper building up to like the 15th floor. It's got bulletproof glass and, and iron bars everywhere. I go up to the lady, and, and she speaks through one of those. Yeah, how can I help you? I said, I'm here to see so-and-so about some diamonds. Okay, Sonny, have a seat. So I sit down. They call me in. They buzz me through. I go to the other side. There's this guy. He's got these big fat glasses on. He's got big loops, and, he's, you know, and he looks like he rolled out of bed that morning, and, he, and he's probably a little bit overweight, if you ask me. And so he says, hey, boy, what do you got? And I I just pick in my pocket, I pull out these stones. I have 20 of them. And his eyes got big as silver dollars. I look, I, I look like I was, a, I was a thief. He looks at him and he says, this one right here, here's the best one. I go, okay, thank you, thank you. I fold it back up, I'm going to put it in my pocket. He says, Sonny, you have 50 G of rock in your pocket. You need to put it somewhere else. I go, uh, he says, put it in your underwear. <laughs> I, thought, I, I, I thought to myself, do you do that? <laughs> I had no idea. You think that jeweler would trust me with that kind of rock? My cousin didn't know either, you know. You see, here we are, we're handling the will of God, and he charges us to authenticate and verify its goodness, its acceptability, and its perfection. Who does that kind of thing? Only a God who's willing to take a risk. And here's the deal. We go through our lives. We have certain things that happen to us. The angelic host watch the whole thing happen. God allows satanic influence to enter in and, 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 and weave some type of web of mystery and chaos. And in that moment, when the angelic host can see what's going on, when, and when the enemy is, is prodding us to, to be upset with God, we have that critical, tiny second of decision. That decision where we say, I don't understand it, I, don't, I can't see the end from the beginning, I cannot calculate what good is possibly here, and my emotions have no desire to accept anything coming down this channel called the will of God. But we in that moment say, my Father in heaven, everything in me screams, no thank you. But I am going to submit my will to you, O oh God. And although I cannot with any of my own faculties be, accept this, I ask you through your spirit, make, help me, work through me to prove how good your will is, how acceptable it is. See, Satan is orchestrating this whole thing so it's unacceptable 
Think of Job. Job had all those things, one right after another, bad news. And the guy wasn't even finished giving him the bad news when the next bad news came. And the whole idea was, number one, to make God look bad and to be totally unacceptable and to follow the advice of his wife, curse God and die. And God puts us in the position when we test all things where we are the proving ground for the one thing that Satan has lied about all of his existence about God, and that's that God is really good. As is said from that famous movie, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And you and I, we are the, the anvil. We are the scales where that can be proven or disproven. And God is asking us to weigh it out carefully. And let the record of your experience and your faith show that the will of God is exactly like he said it was. Think about what Satan did to Eve. Did God really say, Eve, God is not good? He's holding out on you and he wants you not to have what is good. He's holding something back from you. And that's the knowledge of good and evil. You can't trust God. You should know that. And that's what we bought into. And God takes us right back to that bridge that we burned. And he says, you can now authenticate it. Oh, saints, do we understand our tremendous pivotal role and what God has given us to do. And that's proving the will of God. How many of us in this room, right this second, have situations of our health, of our loved ones, of our family, of our children, of our work circumstances, of our career decisions, of any, any other myriad of things, being a new mother or a new father, and we are, we are, are, are nervous and, and we're having thoughts that I don't know if this is right, God. I don't know. I just don't know. That's what we say when we're doubting. I don't know. And God says, listen, what you need to know is you... You can trust me. You can trust me. You don't have to see it. You don't have to have it calculated out to the final conclusion. You can trust me. And you can trust me and prove that my will is good. Is something that can be received and is something that is perfect. Because the entire world without Christ believes that's the exact a lie that God cannot be trusted, that God is not acceptable, and that God's will is imperfect. You, my friend, you, my child, can prove them wrong. And part of our journey in the Christian walk is this idea that we are the proving ground for the will of God. Now think about this. This is exactly what the cross is about, where it is, it is thought that it was said of Jesus, if you say you are God, come down from the cross and save yourself. Hear that cynicism, that sarcasm, that jeering against Christ, that blasphemy. God is all messed up. God is wrong. And God himself uses that very event to totally show that he is just and the justifier of those who need justification. He uses the cross for that. He uses the resurrection for that. This is the heart of God. It's his theme. This is his fingerprints. And we are part of those fingerprints. And we are part of this whole equation. We're proving, the authenticating, verifying, showing the genuineness and the purity of the will of God can finally be done in enemy territory where Satan has the goods on all the human race. He's blinded them. You better believe 
We have an important function. So test all things. Let it begin with the will of God. And a practical note. We've had many, many things happen to our own family that is, I have to say, I, Father, is this really your will? Is it really your will? <laughs> can, I, can I tell you a, a story? Uh, we, uh, we left medicine two and a half years ago. Six months into our, our commendation, our refrigerator starts to die. I had our refrigerator, we had our refrigerator for 16 years. I was praying it would go 20. We're going to take a trip, and so uh, we were praying the Lord would give us a refrigerator. I didn't know they had refrigerators in heaven, but apparently they do. And so we were praying, and the Lord would provide for us. And, and I began to say, no, Father, it, it would have been a lot smarter, don't you think? That's what we say, don't you think? No, he doesn't think that, but that's what I said. Don't you think if maybe the refrigerator broke last year when I was working as opposed to this year? And all of heaven went, oh. So Jan, and she has way more faith than I do. She said, well, Steve, why don't we go at least look at the furni our furniture store and see if they got a refrigerator. We don't even know what we want. So we prayed, and we went inside, and I'll never forget it. I'll just never forget it. We go up there, and the guy, you know, he's, a, he's he, forgive me if you're a salesperson here, but he was the kind of prototypical slick willy salesman. And he goes, well, how are you doing today? We have every refrigerator on the market today. You come on right in. And by the way, today is a special sale. They're always specials. Special sale. It's Memorial Day weekend, and we're going to knock off 33% right off the top, which probably means they raise it 33%, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, that, that sounds good. That sounds good. But let me tell you something else, sir. We've got a computer program that checks 500, 500 zero other competitors in the field, and if anyone, and I mean anyone, has a lower price, we'll match it. You know, what do you do Okay. So, I mean, he's packaged. He's got the whole thing. He looks like, woo, you know. He goes away. Five, ten minutes later, he comes away. He looks white as a sheet, like that wall right there. He goes, I, 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 I can't believe it. Now, so now we're, we're looking at him like, what's wrong with you? And he goes, we checked the c c computer program. It's another third off and we're going to match it. He was so shook up, Janice said, well maybe you should buy one too. I think I will. <laughs> it started off to me as an obstacle. A refrigerator. I'm getting to leave, ready to leave town. I don't have time to shop for a refrigerator. I don't have time to go out there and do the research and what's the best. I don't even want to take read consumer's report. And all we do is we pray, and suddenly, in a split second, we find that the will of God was authenticated. And we watch God, this is amazing, we watch God give us a refrigerator for less than the cost of the one I bought 17 years ago. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I'm just talking about a stinking little dinky refrigerator. How about, how about your life? How about your health? How about the loss of your loved one? How about your family? How about wayward children, wayward adults? How about things that really matter? 
And the place that the will of God will be proven or disproven in terms of its authentic goodness is right in your pew. It'll begin and end with the Joseph disposition. We're going to talk about him perhaps tomorrow morning. But you remember this one thing about Joseph. Everybody meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, and I'm going with God's version on this one. That's how it's done. All right, so what else can we authenticate? What else is important in this, in this discussion of, of the will of God? Well, or excuse me, testing all things. Well, there's, a, there's a, a genuine effort to examine, critically examine yourself personally. This is key. Not only proving the will of God, but also an examination that happens introspectively. And this comes to you out of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight through 31. Now, I'm going to read that to you. And I want to read it because it has a certain, evidence, a certain gravity to it, a certain um, weight to it that I, I think we will sometimes overlook. And so if you look in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight through 31, I will read this to you. And it says the following. But let a man examine himself. Now, that's more than just the male genders, talking about all believers. Let a person examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning. Notice that there's a blindness. There's a non-discernment of the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. In other words, in this particular passage, there is a necessity being expressed of an of a introspective evaluation of your heart. Now, we, don't get me wrong here. We're not talking psychology. What we are talking is a healthy look at one's particular disposition and dealing with, in this case, and I think in, 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 uh, by application in all cases, our fitability at the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, I should say. At, at being fitted for that moment, dealing with unconfessed sin is the application. In this case, uh, there was a lack of appreciation of, of the, the, the meaning and value of the bread and the cup, and particularly the bread, as it's indicated in the text. And he's saying when you have that devalue, disrespect, it's, it's meaning, it's forgiveness, it's, it's power and resurrection, then what happens is that you incur something upon yourself. And what do you incur? incur? You put your health, your physical health in jeopardy. Now, I have to tell you something that happened in our assembly that just totally scared me to death. It's not a pretty story. It's one I'm very nervous to share, but it's, it's our history. There was a time in our assembly in which no one believed that elders was the right thing to do. I know that seems kind of funny since that's, it's in the Bible, but we didn't believe it. Now, we had good reasons why we didn't believe it. There had been, a, uh, there had been previous elderships, and, and, um, and there had been previous non-elders. And the non-elders came to the elders and basically said these very famous words, why don't you get out of the way so we can do it better? And what happened is those elders said, well, no, we're not going to get out of the way. So those non-elders said, well, that's fine, we're out of here. And about 67% of the assembly left in one day gutted the whole place. The remaining ones who were elders looked at each other and said, well, maybe we're doing something wrong. Let's all step down. And for 25 years, we existed without elders. We were too afraid to do it. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There was problems in the oversight. There was fighting and hatred and all that kind of stuff. There were, there were things that had happened. But along the way, as we, the Lord began to work in our hearts and recover us from our spiritual condition, there was one lady in the meeting who prayed this. I pray, Father, that as you reestablish the proper loving authority and willing submission as expressed in oversight, if there's anyone here that would not agree with that, you would take them home. I didn't know that. I didn't know she was praying that. I later found out, and it just, it just totally mortified me. It totally scared me to death. Because in, that, in the year following... We saw two brothers pass away relatively quickly and one person age overnight so that they could not even come out to the meetings. Now, I, I in no way would infer that, that all health issues are related to that. I just find it incredibly coincidental that such a prayer was being lifted up to our Father in heaven as we were struggling through our particular issues. And then I read this verse that requires us to have personal, careful critical examination and failure to do so is met with physical death or illness and we just witnessed physical death and illness and I tell you what that did to me it said Steve you better examine yourself before the throne of God you better have your heart right because you put yourself and your family at risk and saints I think we need to have a fear of the Lord about this don't you one of the things that we are missing today is a healthy fear of God, that He is God and we are not, and that we have certain appropriate obligations as children to Him. And we need to treat Him in such a manner that gives Him this due respect and His due place. And I think we have faltered there. I think we have let that slip. I think we have adopted the business philosophy that we're all just on the same team and we're kind of coaching each other through the Christian life. Let me tell you something. God is the Lord Jesus. He's Lord and he means to stay Lord and we need to keep him as Lord. So testing all things it begins at home, doesn't it? It begins right where you live and breathe. Look at Galatians chapter, chapter 6, please. Let me see what time I'm supposed to finish. Chris, it says here at 3.30, I can go to 3.30. Chris, wake up, buddy. Wake up, man. Wake up. Would you wake up for me, buddy? Okay. Galatians chapter 6. Now, I want you to see this. This is amazing. All right? This is a famous passage in, in chapter 6. We'll look at it verse 1. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So there's a sense of restoration, there's a sense of necessary um, of dealing with, with a, a person who is weak. But notice this, it says, in gentleness, that's meekness, your strength under control, considering, considering yourself. In other words, you're at risk lest you be tempted. You bear one another's burdens. This is the idea of verse 1. And so fulfill the law of Christ, which is a love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 3, if anyone thinks himself to be something, notice this attitude. If you think yourself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Do you know what it means to deceive yourself? You're the only one in the room that doesn't know the truth. That's what it means. It means you are operating onto a set of, with a set of facts that are erroneous. How many times have college students have we done that? Well, I thought the test was today. No, it was yesterday, you idiot. So you flunk, right? 
That's what it means to deceive yourself. But let each one examine his own work. Did you read that? Examine his own work. And then that he will have, have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. He's saying, listen, when it comes to helping another, you also need to take heed to yourself. And when you take heed to yourself, you need to understand that there's an inherent temptation. And that temptation is that you will think more highly of yourself than you ought. And when you do that, you lie to yourself, you believe a lie, and you act in an erroneous manner, usually pride. And when that occurs to you, you fail to do the all-important thing, and that's to examine carefully your own heart. Psalm 139 has a way of saying it. He says, Try me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. You know, brothers, sisters, I've seen conflict in the assembly. I've been part of conflict. I've seen conflict in marriages. I've been part of those conflict, conflicting moments. And in, in, inevitably, when I hear two parties squaring off one party will say to me, they'll say, I am so right, you will see at the judgment seat how right I am. Somebody even said that. That is so dangerous. That is doing violence to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So I would suggest to you, if you happen to sit where you are today, or in the, vo uh, in the hearing of this message, and, and you think you're so right, then you ask the Lord. If you feel like you're so right, you ask the Lord himself. Am I right? Or am I deceiving myself? And whatever he says, you will obey. But I have yet to hear a consistency when somebody, including myself, will say, I'm right on this, I know it, you'll see how right I am, and, and, and say, why don't you test me now, O oh God, see if there be any wicked way in me. Even Job, who was such a righteous individual, you know, he actually came to a point of repentance and in his repentance was that he had the wrong attitude about God. He, he, he confessed, I repent, I have nothing to say to you. You are right, you have the goods on everything, and I can trust you. And I spoke about things I didn't understand, and I commented about things I didn't know. Oh God, I repent. If you feel like you're so right, my brother or sister, then you would be very willing to let God examine you, wouldn't you? Do you realize how much, that would how, how much that would take care of our conflict in the assemblies? Do you realize how that kind of self-examination would reduce us to a humble group of people that God needs, needs in order to serve Him? That's exactly where we need to be today. I suggest we begin this hour. All right, what else should we test and, and, and look at? Well, as Chris pointed out to us, there's doctrinal responsibility. Doctrinal responsibility. Now, this comes to us in my, in my thinking from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I'll read that for you. It, it says the following, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. What does that mean? It means you're going to have to do a little evaluation. And thus the word, same word used in 1 Thessalonians 5, shows up here. But test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of, the, of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not 
that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. And I, this is so uh, dovetail what my brother Chris was saying. We have doctrinal responsibility that begins and ends with the identity of Jesus Christ. And so what they say about Christ is the pivotal thing. I'll never forget, we had a young man come. He stayed with us for a couple, of, like a month. He was a, sort of a pre-medical student. And, and he, uh, I required him to follow me around the hospital. And so whenever I got called in, he came in. If it was 2 or 3 in the morning, we would do it together. And uh, uh, he, uh, I, I said to him, now he, was, he was a professing believer, and I said, now you're required to go to church while you're with me, and you can choose any church you want. But because you live with me, you might want to go to mine since it's easier. That was my subtle way of getting him to come. And he goes, Okay. So after about two weeks, we're in the car, we're driving home and he, from the hospital, and I said, so what do, you think about, uh, what do you think about our church? He goes, well, the first thing I thought was that you were a cult. I said, oh, why would you think we're a cult? Because you always talk about Jesus. I said, guilty, handcuff me now. We intend it to be that way, Right? This is the point of 1 John chapter 4. What do you think about Christ? What do you think about him? Where, who he is, what he has done, and how he's done it in his resurrection from the dead. Where is that in the schema of your doctrine? We are required to make that discerning judgment. Doctrinally, there's benefit in its purity. Look at this in Revelation chapter 2. I mentioned this in my opening segment that the Ephesian assembly ha- had it as their reputation. The Bereans themselves, they, they made careful analysis of what Paul said. What did they do? Paul said it. We took those scriptures that Paul said from the Old Testament and we went and we looked at them ourselves. We looked at Isaiah chapter 53. We, we, we looked at Psalm 22. We looked at Genesis 22. And guess what? We found them to be exactly as Paul explained them. That is what we do. That's why we know the Word of God. We have doctrinal responsibility to test all things. There is benefit in this mutually. Look, look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You've you got to see how it works together. It's, it's a dynamic in the body that has to be uh, present or the body will suffocate its own self. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I want you to see this and we'll bring this to a close shortly. Code words for about 10 more minutes, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I want you to read with me in verse 27. Now, you should know that the Corinthian church had the reputation of being disorderly. You get that from the uh, statements made about people wanting to, to eat ahead of others and get drunk and all that kind of stuff. And so Paul's reestablishing a sense of order. Now he's going to talk about the order, uh, orderly usage of gifts. And so we begin in verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Now, Paul's not saying that's wrong. He's just identifying their practice. But what was wrong was the uh, chaotic way in which these things were handled. He says it this way. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let, let there be two or three at most there, each in turn and let one interpret. In other words, you've got the gift of, speak, of speaking in tongues, and what, what apparently he's doing is you're all speaking at once. And what I want you to do is go a couple at a time, one at a time, and let each one have, and that would be the gift of interpretation. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent. 
So don't, don't, don't let him run off at the mouth, he says, and let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let, notice he switches to another gift. Two or three prophets speak. Let the others judge. So what is this saying? He's saying, listen, as each one is uh, utilizing their gift in the, the local church, what's happening is by testing all things, there is a, a purification process, especially, for example, in speaking forth the word of God. There is a purification process, an authenticating process, whereby the truth is now sort of, uh, how should I say this, uh, auto-preserved. It's, 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 it's heard by the others who know the word of God and measure what is stated against the word of God. And now you ha- it happens in the usage of tongues back in this day. It happens in the usage of prophets back in this day. And you see multiplicity of gifting operating in a fashion that brings benefit to the entire body. Now, they take that over to today when some of those foundational gifts have now expired. And what you find is the principle is still true, where we, our multiplicity of gifts are functioning. And what that does is it breeds together this idea of testing all things. I am so grateful for those in the body of Christ who have the gift of discernment. Our, brother, our brother's book, uh, Limiting Omnipotence, David Dunlap, he wrote several others. One of those is Replacement Theology. I recommend that to you. I recommend that to you. David Dunlap is one of those men in our circles who God has used to, to, to cipher out some of these things which are, are uh, quite honestly, can be very deceptive. Men like that. Warren Henderson, another author, he does the same thing. I personally have go-to people, and when I don't know something, guess who I'm calling? I'm calling those guys. And I don't feel any shame about it. I think they're there for the body of Christ for a reason. And I utilize them fully and completely and almost mercilessly. Right? You see, this is what happens when we test all things. It allows the body to have utility as it should be functioning. All members, all joints and sinews active as it should be. All right, so doctrinally. Now, I'd like to end this segment with this illustration from Ahab and Jehoshaphat's life. Right? Now, Ahab and Jehoshaphat were actually relatives. I hate to be a relative of Ahab, but they were. Jehoshaphat was indeed a a reasonably godly king of the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, Judah, that is. And Ahab was the uh, king of the north. They were contemporaries, and what happened was some of their children got married. Now, I don't think it was because they met at the grand ball for the north and south kingdom event. I think it was because they were trying to unite themselves both politically and militarily. This comes out in Second Chronicles chapter 18. You might want to turn there. We're going to spend our last few minutes looking at this segment. So both... Politically and militarily, they came together to be married. Now, let's just make a comment about this. Listen, there are things that people do in life for what seems to be political and military or gaining of strength. Some of you young people in this room will be tempted to marry for those kinds of reasons. Don't do that. Don't do that. Some of you in this room will be tempted to strike up business relationships in a manner that will seem to be an an adventitious in the financial realm. Don't do that. The New Testament says this. 
don't be unequally yoked. It doesn't say, and it doesn't limit it to the business world or to the marital realm. It says in all things, don't be unequally yoked. That's the implication. Now, Jehoshaphat finds himself in this situation, and for Jehoshaphat, it was almost a near-death experience for him. So what they did is they, their children had gotten married, and, and uh, Jehoshaphat goes and visits Ahab. I mean, after all, we are father-in-laws. And so what does he do? He goes with him. Uh, verse 2, after some years, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. That means he went all the way north, which was a good uh, three-day travel from uh, Jerusalem. And Ahab killed sheep and oxen in abundance. What does that mean? He was showing off. He was showing off, and the people were with him and persuaded him to join with him persuaded Jehoshaphat to go up with him to Ramoth-Gilead. He wanted to take out a city which was occupied by the enemy, the Syrians, in fact. So Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go up with me against Ramoth-Gilead? Now, why do you think he sacrificed all those animals? To show Jehoshaphat that he was aligned with Jehoshaphat in religious matters. I am just, I'm thinking like you, Jehoshaphat, about Jehovah. I'm thinking like you, and so I make sacrifices to, to Jehovah too. But do you know that it was Ahab who, with his wife Jezebel, systematically killed the prophets of God? So it was all a farce, wasn't it? It was all for show. It was all for demonstration to Jehoshaphat. This was what was so wrong with the relationship. And thus he, he asked him for military help. He asked him for fleshly muscle. And so Jehoshaphat does what, what, what Jehoshaphat does. He said, well, is there any counsel we can get from, from, from the Lord about this? And so uh, it says this, uh, where did it go? Uh, oh, verse 4, and Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets, not a prophet of the Lord, it just says the prophets together. 400 men, that's impressive. Got 400 guys saying the same thing. They got to be right, or they're just really wrong. And so they said, 400 men, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will deliver it into the king's hand. And Joseph, Jehoshaphat said, No, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is there anybody here who is that? Look at what it says a prophet of the Lord, of Jehovah? I see all your guys out there, uh, King Ahab, and they look good, and they're, they're well. They're well taught and they're articulate and they're all saying the same thing but I, I really want to know is there a prophet of Jehovah well there's one I don't really like him he always says things that really bother me that's because you're wrong oh yeah, buddy well uh, you know he just says you know and I don't really like him so I don't really talk to him and and what does Jehoshaphat say well let's get him uh, so one of uh, Ahab's guys meets up with Micaiah, and he says, Hey, hey you, now listen, you're going to go before the kings today, and you better say the right thing, because there's 400 of us out there saying they've got to go to Ramoth Gilead. You need to say that thing. You got it? It's a very loose paraphrase in the original language. So Micaiah goes, okay. Let's, let's, pick, it, let's pick it up. Look in verse 6. Jehos uh, sorry, verse, uh, where did I go? Uh, verse 8, Then the king of Israel called one of the officers and said, Bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, 
quickly. And the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, and the king of Judah, clothed in their robes, sat each on his throne, and they sat, at the, see how official this sounds, on the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. By the way, if you'd like to go to Samaria next January, or February, we'll go to Samaria, Lord willing. And you can stand on the gates of Samaria, right? Yes, you should. All right, and all the prophets answered before them. And now Zedekiah, the son of the, the, the Zedekiah, had made, there it is. Zedekiah had made horns of the iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. He, he gra- graphically shows these horns. They're going to gore out the Syrians and they're going to be done. Oh, king, you go. And all the prophets prophesied, so go up to Meribah Gilead. Uh, then the messenger had gone to, gone to Micaiah said, Now you listen, you say it nicely. And verse Verse 15, verse 13, Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever my God says, that will I speak. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refame? And he said, Go and prosper, and they shall be delivered into your hand. Can you hear it? It's very sarcastic. It goes like this. Yeah, you go and prosper. The Lord's going to give them into your hands. Okay, there you go. Can you hear it? That's, it's very sarcastic. And so the king catches it. He goes like this. How many times have I told you I make you swear? You, you tell me nothing but the truth. That's a lie. He doesn't want to know the truth. Then Micaiah says this. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his own house in peace. And king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you? Can you hear this guy? I told you, Joe. He doesn't, he doesn't like me. He doesn't ever say anything. He just told me that he was going to scatter everything. See? And we got 400 to 1. Joe, you decide for yourself. Then the prophet Micaiah says this. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab, king of Israel, to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? And so no one, so one spoke in, in, in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came, from, uh, came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and put a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. You hear what's going on? This prophet exposes both kings to the unseen realm of what was happening. And he said, listen, I saw God, and God was looking for a way to bring demise to Ahab because of his sin. And, and, and different ones said they could do this, they can do that. And finally, a spirit who had a lying spirit said, I'll go and I'll cause all the prophets, you 400 people in particular, to give the same lie and sound so convincing so he will go to Ramoth Gilead. And that's where he'll die. Now let me tell you, this is what I call... Testing all things. Jehoshaphat went to the level of going against the common, uh, the common theme of the day. He, he wanted to know the truth, even if it was unpopular. He wanted to know the right answer, even if it was not what everybody was interested in saying. And the prophet of God had to speak it, even though his life was in jeopardy. He, wanted, he, he had to be the man of the hour. Listen, Understanding this, that testing all things may mean that you might not get what you want to hear. Too many of us in our lives are looking to get counsel just because 
we want to have somebody agree with us. That's not testing all things. That's searching for your validation. Too many of us in our lives are looking to justify our position. This is one of the great dangers of itinerant ministry. When we are out and and people tell us about their problems and we pray with them, sometimes we're misquoted as if we agree with what was being stated. That's that's a danger of itinerant ministry. And and individuals will will so try to bolster their, their position by coming alongside somebody they think has influence and say, see, Chris or Steve, they agree with me. That's the farthest thing from the truth. This is how we distort this idea. We don't test all things. Listen, I'm here to tell you today that that is a great danger. Testing all things means that that you're going to have to go through the mechanics and the honesty that it takes to come to a point where truth really does stand. And generally speaking, the truth that, that stands requires the pride to fall. That's what's so painful. It requires you to actually say, well, maybe this is the wrong thing I'm thinking. What does God say? Maybe it requires us to actually have to repent. Brothers, sisters, as we think this through, I would suggest to you that testing all things, testing all things does require a sterilization of our motives. Motives are big in the heart of God. Motives are are profoundly important. God cares about the why of what you do. And many times, the prayer without ceasing has an effect of boiling those motives up so that the impurities of such motives, the selfish ambition, the pride, the jealousy, the coveting, gets burned off. And you confess that in the closet of prayer so that the heart is now ready to do the will of God wholly and fully without impurity. That's what we need to be as a people of God. That's not quenching the Spirit of God. So test all things is what it says. Perhaps you are in a position where you are testing all things right now. Maybe it has to deal with proving the goodness of the will of God. Maybe it has to deal with something personal that you're covering in your own life like David did. Or maybe it has to deal with something doctrinal. I suggest to you, go through the mechanics. Go do what it takes. Uh, Don't fall prey to Ahab's uh, uh, deceit. Be Jehoshaphat that will seek the truth even to the point of if it's being unpopular or being contrary to your own will. Ahab didn't want to give up his will. It's amazing to me that Jehoshaphat still went into battle and the very first shot out of the, out of the, from the enemy was aimed at his own armor. Boy, he made some bad decisions, didn't he? But one of the best decisions he made was to test all things. If you are in that position of testing all things, don't compromise on the exam process. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come before you today, we would like to thank you that you have been a a God who has carefully given us such instruction. I would have never known the inner workings of the spiritual dynamic in heaven with with people, uh, spirits vying for victory and, and place in your economy. 
and to do so so disruptively, so deceitfully. Father, I, I would have never have known any of that. This requires me, this demands me to carefully test all things. Oh, help us to do so. Not in fear, not in some sort of paranoia, but just confident, co- confidently coming to our Father, asking the honest questions, and thrusting ourselves, casting ourselves on your ability to give honest answers. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.